So, Robotez has extended Article 50 without an act of parliament. Surprise, ruddy surprise! How is this legal? Is it legal? Is she even legal? How on earth is this bi-dictat prime moron remotely legal? Hello again, and welcome back to Trash Future, the podcast that you're listening to right now. It's me, Riley. You may remember me from every other episode of this podcast. I'm joined, of course, by the full clip of everyone, including Milo Edwards. Locked and loaded. Hussein Kasvani. Hey, I'm back. It's been a minute. Nate Bethay. Hello. Thanks for having me. And returning three-peat champion, Tom Cabassi. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, it is lovely to have you back for one of our ca- occasional episodes of Sober Analysis. <laughs> yeah. no, no dragon dicks today, folks. Not yet, anyway. You, know, you never know mm. when it comes up. We can't promise that. Yeah. No. Um, but what we, w- we do have is uh, something very exciting. Uh, live on air, I'm going to declare my personal independence from the European Union. I we actually voted you out. Really. <laughs> we voted you out personally. It was very personal. This sounds like something that, like, just the idea of like a per- like declaring my personal independence from my wife. It exactly <laughs> has very divorce energy. The EU is Love Island now. <laughs> <laughs> if someone gets voted out every week. We decided it's easier for the UK to leave the EU that way, just like one by one, <laughs> and it will take sixty million weeks. I, Riley Quinn, do hereby solemnly swear that I do personally declare. <laughs> it reads like a patter song <laughs> that I am a British citizen of the United Kingdom of Great Britain and not and not Northern Ireland, crucially, <laughs> <laughs> and not a European citizen. And in so doing, do not recognize the European Union, its authority, laws, or legislation. (laughs) That on the 29th day of the month of March in the the year 2019, the United Kingdom of Great Britain did leave in whole and renounce any and all membership of the European Union in all forms, legal or otherwise. (laughs) Spiritual. (laughs) And that we reclaim all fishery rights, agricultural rights, all rights to sovereignty, self-control of borders, but spelled like people sleeping over, Mm. uh, belonging to the United Kingdom of Great Britain and control all the legal systems of the United Kingdom of Great Britain. That we regain control of all trade, movement across all borders and all forms of immigration in the United Kingdom of Great Britain. Name, date, Postcode. I'm really glad that we get the defunct bookstore back. <laughs> that was something I, I really well, wanted actually, for the me. listeners who, who don't know what's going on in the room right now. Riley has a bowl of chlorine washed chicken in front of him that mm. he's eating raw. It's pretty gross. But it is Liagel. Yeah, <laughs> it is Liagel now. That's the that's the. This is just one example of many Facebook memes that have been circulating ever since the United Kingdom voted to first do a short extension from, um, from its Brexit. Uh, deadline of May, March 29th to April 11th, and then again from April 11th to Halloween, where we will spookily leave. <laughs> um, and just as last time we were, we talked to Tom, we spoke about the way in which Remainers engage in like bizarre fantasism um, and very literal protests of like mm. taking a flamethrower to a Brexit deal or smashing a button that says Remain with a sledgehammer. Yeah. Eating um, their own shit or something, yeah. Sort of more or less. Just these very embarrassing public protests. I mean, that is basically the wolferendum, isn't it? <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> shit, uh, shit was eaten at the wolferendum, certainly. <laughs> um, it's now Leavers that are doing it. Um, but, uh, and it's yet again, Brexit has broken everyone's brains. Now, Tom, I forced you, (laughs) I I did some cruel and unusual punishment. I forced you to watch the video of the three MPs doing a Brexit escape room. What's your reaction to that? It it was, as you could imagine, horrifying, really. Um, (laughs) I think what was the worst feature of all was that they were dressed up um, in sort of gear from the 1940s, and it was this great escape from the Brexit um, escape room. And this this idea that sort of underpins the whole Brexit debate, that somehow we're victims or plucky Englishmen who are going to escape from some mm. sort of foreign uh, uh, tyranny, it's just, it's just pathetic. Indeed. Um, Unlike the foreign tyranny of just letting the US run all of our healthcare systems, <laughs> which would definitely be good and would that's, not in any way be bad globalization. That's just freedom, man. Absolutely. Um, yeah, it's the that for some reason, anyone who talks, anyone who tries to talk about this whole process metaphorically just it engages in the weirdest literalism. 
It was a very, very weird thing to see, to see three MPs sort of humiliate themselves once again in <laughs> fancy dress form. It's just horrifying. Look, it could have been worse. It could have been like an adult bull pit. There's one ball in there labelled Brexit and they have to find it. (laughs) But it's really sad. It's really sad that like so much like public space in London is now even 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 our MPs have no choice but to go to escape rooms. Yeah. Um, Now this is now this is like really cursed my brain because I'm thinking of like a version of the film The Great Escape, but starring all of the Brexiteers, uh and like Mark Francois is the Steve (laughs) McQueen character, and he just like keeps trying to escape, but he keeps like crashing the motorbike into a wall because he's only (laughs) ever ridden a motorbike in an arcade before, and then he like you know Jean Claude Luncker goes cooler, (laughs) (laughs) marches off there with his little cricket ball and throws it against the wall. Well, that's the this that's not again. That is the metaphor I would use, as opposed to any of this weird, like, you know, literal papier-mâché shit that they've been doing. That's the metaphor I would use, which is these are all, most of the columnists and MPs who are sort of the gnashing, frothing, no-deal Brexit people are just, they hate that they were too young for any of the major wars, or too old for the major wars in the 90s, and also they were born at the wrong time to play shooter games. They've never had a battle. I mean, isn't this why they kind of set up that, like, why these kind of meme, these um, personal independence memes are kind of circling around. Yeah. Like, the, 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 the only logical extension between now to October is that at some point, um, a bunch of these, like, old us Brexiteers are going to try form, like, v- their own version of, like, the Lord's Resistance Army. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, wait, sorry, Dad's Resistance Army? Dad's Resistance Army. Um, and they'll go around, like, go around various... Peter Boney 2012. Various English town centres with, like, airsoft rifles demanding that, like, if if Britain doesn't leave the European Union now with no deal, um, they're going to terrorise the, uh, they're going to terrorise the local town, which the only stores on the high street are vape stores and um, escape rooms. I'm so excited for the concept of like a guerrilla insurgency for Brexit because they would suddenly realise <laughs> that like there's nothing for them to fight against because everything they hate is imaginary because like the yeah. EU army doesn't exist and there are no yeah. troops for them to ambush. So they're just having to like break into people's offices yeah, and like fair. make them slightly more unsafe. Yeah, they're bit... fighting against the Eurostar. Right. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. They'll, be, they'll be like, damn, damn, the Taliban was a lot better fought out than I, than I previously expected. Acted. I mean, Marc Francois, who like loves to tout that he was what was he? Um, he was a territorial army officer, right, or something like that. Yeah, they didn't teach him to lose. Um, so like those types of people who like really like the idea of war, but have never actually like they're, they're the type of people who like imagine that they could just he do should a be Mark running Warburg. a paintball place. Right, like, that is Marc Francois' <laughs> natural job. <laughs> so many, so many, TA, so, so many TA guys are like this, right? They're the types of guys who are like, oh yeah, if I was like going down to Afghan right now, I just like go to the front line and like fuck it, like fuck them up. They wouldn't know what I'm talking about. And it's like when you actually go, it's like, oh, actually the Taliban are a lot smarter than I expected. Mm. Why does this keep happening? Why do I keep running into like a, wait? They a, have a, guns. <laughs> why do I keep running into a brick wall with like a with a with a shadow with a door painted on it? <laughs> uh, so there are two other examples of um, no dealers being now driven insane uh, by the Brexit extension. Um, one of which is after Downing Street stood down its no-deal contingency planning and businesses started to stand down their no-deal contingency planning, Brexiteer Conservative MP Steve Baker branded this decision as one of, quote, sheer spite, as the civil servants had worked very hard. Yeah, he's had a lot of concern for those civil servants. But I think Mm. no-deal has played a really important role in the Brexit debate. So arguably, the only way you could get to a uh, majority vote to leave was by having leave as an undefined option, right? Just being imaginary. You could imagine whatever mm-hmm. country you wanted at the other side of leave. And keeping no deal in play and in discussion for the last couple of years has been one of those sort of seismic strategic mistakes uh, that the Prime Minister is prone towards, whereby she's ended up leaving something on the table uh, that enabled everyone's fantasy to exist. Mm-hmm. So you could just dream up what did no deal look like? It looked like anything you felt like, because it was mm-hmm. by definition the, the sort of presence of absence. The arrangement is nothing, and therefore you can fill that empty vessel with any kind of perverse fantasy you like. And, and that's what I think has driven a lot of the sort of the psychosis of like people mobilizing into the, you know, um, dad's resistance army, which is that as the as the waveform has collapsed and it's become clear what Brexit will look like, whether it's May's deal, some kind of customs union, uh, or whatever, as it has gotten more set down, the disjunct between their fantasies just sort of crashing headfirst into reality, I think, is 
genuinely broken a lot of them. Yeah, I think it has broken a lot of them. And I think that's because for a, a lot of this, the right lens is psychoanalysis, not political analysis. Mm. And that this is a sort of search for an account of heroism in these rather sad old men's lives. And it's, you know, at its worst, it's, or its best, perhaps, it's pathetic. And at its worst, it's incredibly destructive for everyone else. So what you're saying is Slavoj Žižek was right all along. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, this is a very divorced dad thing, isn't it? Because it's like, the whole thing is like Schrodinger's cat. It's like, well, until I get divorced from my wife, we can't definitely say that I won't be dating Claudia Schiffer. It's like, that. <laughs> but as soon as I do, we have to find out. And it's not looking good, lads. <laughs> <laughs> and it's the same thing where the um, where you could where there is now the desperate bid to to um, retain the fantasy by suggesting that actually all of the extensions never happened, that no deal was struck, and that we're living in the rea- reality of no deal, which is another meme circulating on Boomer Facebook, which is that the extension was- also known, Facebook. <laughs> <laughs> which, is, which is that the extension was illegal. So this guy, Robin Tilbrook, the head of the England Democrats- This is one thing Boomers get frustrated about. It's when their extension is illegal. <laughs> I paid good money for that conservatory. <laughs> so they hit very close to home. I hit very, very close. <laughs> It's like, this is just another Dartford anecdote for you. (laughs) So, yeah, so they're saying it was illegal because it wasn't carried out through the pro, it was carried out through a statutory instrument rather than an act of parliament. And again, this is just a mirror image of attempting to save your your political project with appeal to like some arcane technical rule because Mm. everyone's watched too many inspirational sports movies where actually like (laughs) the basketball tips in at the last moment. When in in March, I started to debate some Brexiteers on Facebook, uh, on Facebook, on Twitter, um, saying, "Well, you know, it's actually very easy to change the the date of exit day. You mm. just change it through a statutory instrument." And they kept saying, "No, it's written down in the law. There's an act of Parliament. It's the law." And it was extraordinary the number of these people who had never bothered to check. It's very clear. It says mm. very clearly you can, you know, a minister of the crown can vary the date, and this is how you do it. Mm. So this, it's interesting how it was built up. And Theresa May has this sort of habit. Of, of building up an expectation and then not delivering it. Um, and this was Relatable. just another one of those, right? <laughs> Relatable, yeah. Um, and this was just another example of that. Yeah. I mean, we all know that the only thing that is intrigued, it can only be enshrined in law once it's like engraved in a sword, right? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. That's, that's why there's a sword in the Tower of London that says, you like, no, like, no, race, no racist words are allowed to be said, otherwise you'll get arrested. <laughs> and it has to be the sword of the guy who's like, dear ISIS, if you can kill me, I'll give you 50k, but I have a sword. Good luck. <laughs> so I think you're, you're right. This is, this is basically psychological. And it's why I think, like, that you know, no matter how much people on the left like to paint Brexit as something good through you know their lexitiness, is that really this is this is it's a fashy project because fascism always is about appealing to the, the sort of sadistic psychology, the sadomasochistic psychology of sort of of old men who have a sort of schlocky dream of of this of of a paradise world in which everyone is rosy cheeked and this the shopkeeper says hello and we just have to like obliterate society as it currently is in order to achieve that. Yeah, it's perfection, a vision of a vision of their version of of perfection. So I think but if you want to understand Brexit, fuck David Goodhart, you got to read Eric Fromm. Yeah. And Lexit is this funny thing in the sense that there's all these people who are like, oh, I, I don't like the European Union for these reasons. And although Brexit is a project being controlled largely by fascism for fascist purposes, I'm confident that when it actually happens, I will decide how it ends up. <laughs> and even though I'm in a concentration camp now, I'm confident that everyone will come around to my point of view in just a few short moments as I'm inscribing all of my socialist policies on the wall of this windowless cell. <laughs> 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 yeah, I mean, it, do, it, it does seem like it, it's it's a Tory psychodrama sp- specifically because it's concentrated in this weird nostalgia for a vision of, of England that n- has never really existed. Yeah. And it's like for them, like you said, sunny uplands, whereas like in real life, it was just smog and nonsense, like yeah. nonstop. <laughs> I think there's like some sort of distance, right? Because I've, I mean, from what I've noticed anyway, you have these types of people seem to be dwindling. The people who like genuinely believe in kind of like a sort of positive vision of what Brexit could be. Like this guy like is obviously, you know, the guy in the video is like living in this kind of fantasy world. Lit- in the literal sense of like he will he'll just he refuses to believe that anything has happened after the 29th of March other than the thing that he has been conjuring up for the past 2 years. But there's other people others the other people who exist on the right who talk about Brexit purely in like these kind of 
absolutist terms it's very much like we just want to leave i don't give a shit what happens if you're like eating chlorinated chicken and like you can't get heat in your house and just live with it you'll survive but i just want this done right mm. it's kind of and that's like i feel like that's another dimension it's not one that's rooted in like naivety it's one that's rooted in this very obvious and very knowing um idea that yeah things are gonna get really bad for people including maybe myself and my wife who i'm currently trying to divorce my divorce from but mm. who gives a shit let's just do it anyway so yeah it's like a weird like hair shirt thing for these people where like for some reason it, they just have to do it no matter what no matter what the consequences will be even if it's like a, we'll guillotine you all they're like it has to happen had a destructive allure all along and that's partly because so much the establishment said don't do it here's a button really don't press it yeah and it's like the kid who's told not mm. to do something and therefore it becomes irresistible to do it and it's a, it's a kind of understandable sentiment in some respects, right? When you're told definitely don't do this thing, yeah. a lot of people react by going, I really now really want to do that thing. I really want to fuck the black hole. Yeah. So and speaking- the Brexit button is on the other side of the wall. And when they pushed it through, it extended the stop Brexit button in Jeremy Corbyn's <laughs> office, which he's been refusing to press. <laughs> so speaking, speaking of... Uh, and speaking of Corbyn and the famous stop Brexit button, let's just do a quick review of how we got to where we are, which is... No, nothing really decided. No deal, sort of off the table, but still the default. Um, default if nothing is decided, mm-hmm. um, or at least seen, seen to be. And Brexit extended to October thirty first. Um, Amazing! What, what a day! <laughs> what is? What do we think? What is? We talked last time about what Labour's strategy was, and it involved holding the Tories to account based on what they've said. But Labour has Labour's strategy changed at all? Well, I think it's it's somewhat starting to shift over time. I think where. Uh, Labour started out, which was to say, okay, well, here are the tests. Just does your deal meet them? No, it doesn't. Okay. And then people said, right, what's your alternative? Labour set out its alternative and wrote to the Prime Minister in early February saying, well, this is the sort of Brexit deal the Labour Party could support. The Prime Minister basically sort of brushed it off and said, I'm not very interested. Thank you very much. (laughs) Then we had this palaver, what, 10 days ago? Um, where the Prime Minister said that she was suddenly going to sit down and negotiate with Jeremy Corbyn. And that, to me, was pretty obviously a bad faith offer. Mm. And the way that you know it was a bad faith offer was the fact that if it had been sincere that Prime Minister Theresa May was saying that she was going to negotiate a soft Brexit with you know, terrorist-loving Marxist Jeremy Corbyn, (laughs) as they like to describe him, the idea that then the hardline Brexiteers who wanted to leave with no deal instantaneously would just put up with that without resigning was clearly just not true. Right? Mm-hmm. We would have known if it was a good faith offer because a bunch of people would have resigned the next morning. The fact they didn't mm-hmm. shows it was a sham. And essentially, it had a short-term purpose of trying to signal to the Europeans, look, I've got a different approach. We're going to take this forward through a process of consultation and consensus building and to give that kind of fiction. And so that carried into the European Council meeting. And then it's continued since then because everyone wants a holiday. So now we're in the mode of pretending. (laughs) Seriously, everyone is now, everyone's like, actually, this has been exhausting. Mm -hmm. Let's just pretend the negotiations are ongoing so we can have recess. And then it will blow up after recess because by that point, there's no need to kind of keep the fiction going there was that piece in that financial times about or i think it was the ft or it might have been one of like the telegraph or something about mps like needing to have like mental health um take take like mental health breaks because of an escape how, um, <laughs> uh, because brexit was getting too much um like was it mps it could have been civil servants i think it was mps right. i remember seeing this well but um, i think everyone actually doesn't genuinely need a break from it and it has been stressful for people yeah. but that's because I've, i was thinking a lot about this a lot of people feel very upset with the way things are at the moment and all the rancor and division and arguments and failure to resolve the question. In my view, actually, this is really healthy. This is what democracy actually looks like. When you've got a big and important question that needs to be decided, people hold very different views and they argue for them. They try and forge a compromise and they go back and forth and there's a real struggle. It tells you that something matters. And I think the lesson from all of this should be that we need more democracy, not less. And this is the first time in a long time that we've seen what that looks like. What this actually exposes to me is that we do have a system of elected dictatorships where basically the government of the day mm-hmm. largely gets its own way. There's a bit of a tussle between leading personalities within it, you know, Gordon Brown versus Tony Blair and, you know, what does 
uh, Nick Clegg really think about what David Cameron wants to do and all that kind of stuff. But that's not real politics. That's just gossip. And actually, for a change, we've been in an arena of real politics, real democracy. And why are people so upset by it? It's because actually we've learned helplessness. Mm. There is this mm. learned helplessness that has existed such that when there's a real argument going on, people suddenly say, well, I don't want to hear anything about it. I just want this to be over. It's so awful. It's so appalling. Mm. I think that's also connected back to like a lot of the ways in which people have tried to be politically active about this and in the ways it just hasn't really worked. Mm. So I think like we can we we like last time we talked about this we talked about the just endless protest marches that essentially amounted to please make it stop more or less. Well, I, I, so I'm not sure I completely agree with that. I do think I I do think the fact that a million people cared enough to go and protest for a people's vote or whatever had important symbolic value both to Westminster for saying actually that's not an awful lot of people who care enough to give mm. up a Saturday to do it and in continental capitals where it started to generate this narrative of well actually there's this the biggest pro-european movement in mm. all of europe appears to now be in the united kingdom you know what the fuck is going on and if you take the revoke take us back sandra yeah <laughs> but, it's kind of, but it's kind of fascinating right yeah and, the, and then i think this revoke petition right i think really did have an impact in westminster because the idea that there were six million voters who were pissed enough about brexit to sign a petition told you something really quite significant. Because most of the time, most British people are like, can you just get on with it? I don't want to hear about it. I don't like it. I'm not interested. And the fact there's a block of people that care that much is electorally very significant. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that somehow that means that we're going to get a revocation, but what it signals to politicians is six million really pissed people need to think very carefully about how to respond to all that it also creates some really weird and bizarre moments like i was thinking mm. about what, what was what's like the very the, the i don't remember a lot about like the the moments that define brexit <laughs> other than matthew goodwin eating his book yeah which, which like <laughs> like if, i mean if, it's if, so if, fibrous good if, for the battle if, if more democracy produces more of that then yes Absolutely. Absolutely. A recipe book that you can cook. <laughs> <laughs> page by page. So um, I'm really literally excited. a cookbook. Yeah. I'm really excited for the very like principled uh leave Brexit protests where they like it really elucidate what it is that they feel passionately about. I feel, I feel uh, you like you know, like yeah. over the years, like the EU environmental safety regulations may have taken their smog, but they will never take their nonsense. I feel like we could get to a point. I, I wonder what the point will be where like everyone just loses their minds so much. That like someone from the Leave campaign just does like the dumbest thing, and none of us would expect it. Like eating the book was like one of the golden moments. But I sort of wonder whether I also like um what was it those pro those pro EU people who got nude in Parliament for some reason? Oh yeah, no, well, that, the, was, that the, was no, that was Extinction Rebellion. Oh, was that okay? Oh yeah, right, that yeah. was actually about yeah the environment, yeah. wasn't it? it but was then there was the Brexit. Keys economics professor who got naked and wrote yeah, yeah, something someone, about Brexit someone, on her boobs. So, some someone before. got nude. I'm just waiting for someone from Leave to like get nude as well. I was just wondering if you think that there's going to be like a moment of like absolute make or break. I'm thinking of, of previous crises in the United Kingdom, things like the like the flash crash or a currency devaluation or things like that. Do you feel like there's going to be a moment where there's literally going to be like, we're at a cliff edge, we have to do something? Well, I think that's what the Prime Minister's been trying to create. That's been a core part of her strategy for the last couple of years and she's manifestly failed to do it. And that's the reason for that was that, I, so, was that actually no deal was quite clearly a, a hoax. Mm -hmm. um, I started calling it a hoax last summer. It started to get some traction in and around the vote in November. Um, and the reason that you could confident, confidently say that was that the consequence of no deal was so serious in terms of uh, the future of the union, so losing Northern Ireland would be a, a pretty likely outcome of a no deal Brexit, uh, imposing sanctions on your own economy um, by <laughs> ripping up trade deals with 67 nations overnight. It was actually fairly obvious that no even vaguely responsible uh, politician would ever permit that to happen. Mm -hmm. And equally, it was always pretty clear uh, that the Europeans would be prepared to use extensions as a way of avoiding no deal. The question is, when does that reach its limits? Mm -hmm. And is there a risk of a misjudgment whereby actually on the European side, they say, no, no, enough is enough. That re this, this one really is real. Mm -hmm. This one really is the last extension. And MPs in Parliament saying, oh, I'm sure they'll just extend again and therefore we can postpone making a, a decision. That's the really big risk. I don't think we've got that much further to run in this extension game. So my, my, my sort of central view on this now is that 
the talks will come to nothing because they were never a good faith offer in the first yeah. place. Mm. I think people are very much mistaken if they think a compromise can be found. I think at this point, people are far too dug in. So Brexit, the vote to leave was a general mandate. And the government uh, and the Prime Minister could have generated a specific mandate out of that by having a very consultative open process from 2016 onwards to say, okay, well, we've got this general instruction to leave now. How do we bring people together and and look at how we actually do that? Mm. Once you had the general election in 2017, it should have been blindingly obvious that without a majority... Um, she would need to build a broader consensus for what leaving the EU looked like, and she chose not to do that. So you've got to the situation now with that passage of time that having failed to generate that specific mandate, everyone has dug into their particular positions, and therefore I think Brexit has essentially dissolved. And I think the, the, the Conservatives have broken Brexit as a political project, which is kind of a fascinating thing to see. So... Where does it go from here? The talks will definitely break down. Even if they were to reach an agreement between Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn, um, mm. the Tories would vote. If it didn't have a second <laughs> referendum attached mm. to it, the Tories would vote against it on substance because they'd say, well, we don't like a soft Brexit, customs union, single market regulation, and so on. And if it didn't have a, a, a second referendum attached to it, Labour MPs would vote against it on process. So you could have a situation where... <laughs> Jeremy Corbyn and Theresa May agree a deal, and the only people that vote for it in Parliament are the opposition government front benches, and it fails again. So at this point, I think there is no majority in this Parliament for any outcome whatsoever, and that leaves you with processes as the only way forward. And that means either a general election to change the Parliament so that you can achieve a majority, or it means a second referendum um, to delegate the decision back to the people rather than for Parliament itself to make it. Yeah, and you said yesterday, I think, on, on Twitter that because of the current polling, you don't think a GE is is likely. I, I go back and forth on this. I mean, I think I, I think if you were thinking about this rationally from the Tory side, you would say to yourself, "Well, we can't get a majority for any outcome, even by trying to negotiate with Jeremy Corbyn. It's not possible to get to an outcome that's agreed across Parliament. The DUP are dug in, the ERG are dug in, Labour's pretty much dug in." So there isn't an option there, in which case you can either have a a general election where the Labour Party will almost certainly promise renegotiate and second referendum, Mm -hmm. or you can have a second referendum. And if you have a choice as a Tory member of parliament between having a second referendum under a Labour government or a second referendum under a Tory government, I suspect that you will end up concluding eventually... Um, under the, duress, under duress, that you prefer it under a Tory government than a Labour government. Now, I've usually got the timing. I've usually got the kind of where it's going to go right, but the timing's wrong. I usually think it mm-hmm. mo- will move at a bit of a faster pace. <laughs> like uh, when I was last on the show, I was saying, you know, I don't think the soft Brexit thing is going to get a majority, and we eventually found that with mm-hmm. the indicative votes. I just thought that would have occurred, you know. Four or five months ago, <laughs> you also said you also said the later. point about the them basically using no deal, trying to like threaten no deal as a means of getting the, the deal through. Yeah, they're like they're like mm. we're gonna create the scenario of an economic destruction because that's what's gonna be your punishment if you don't vote for my deal. Yeah, and it just totally failed. So my my guess now is how does this play out? I don't think you get anywhere this side of the summer. I think basically everyone just mm. finds various different ways to waste time. I then think the party conferences then lock people into a more hardline position. Mm. Uh, I think Labour will be will explicitly come out of the party conferences saying, you know, Labour is a party that believes in remaining in the European Union and uh, exclusively supports a second referendum as the means to achieve it. And then I suspect that there's a decent chance that you get legislation in October that says there shall be a, a second referendum organised. Will be my guess. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we go back to the Europeans at the end of October and say, okay, well, we're we're not going to have it all sorted out by 31st of October, but this is the referendum. This is the process. It's passed into an act of parliament. There's a specific date that the referendum will take place on. Can we extend to you know the other side of that date? And after that referendum, that referendum will make the decision and either we'll be in and we'll revoke Article 50 or we will definitely be out and the consequence of the vote will be that we will we will leave. 
Yeah. Um, I've greatly enjoyed personally Theresa May's strategy of being like a sort of um, feckless supply teacher screaming at a class, I'm going to count to 10, <laughs> but only getting to three before she is hit in the head with a ball of rolled up blue tack. <laughs> that's, I think that's possibly the best description I've heard so far. But the, the stunning lack of political skill, I think at this stage, mm. people get very distracted by it. So they sort of say, well, this person has no political ability whatsoever. She's completely lacking in any empathy or ability to persuade people mm. and they think that that's the problem but actually the problem is much further back yeah. in a catastrophic failure of strategy to not mm. understand after a close vote that probably you needed to bring people together mm. and then in 2017 to have a Lancaster House speech which if we were using the kind of modern parlance mm. that was basically a proposal for a managed no deal that's actually mm. what she really proposed in Lancaster House and then you know to go through this journey still not seeing what was obvious which was that she wasn't going to get a deal through purely with votes from her own side yeah well because she spent so much time trying to bring her own side together forgetting that 30 percent of them are completely insane fuckos like <laughs> right. like like fucking you know uh jacob reese mogg and mark francois the dick dastardly and muttley of the tory party like you can't <laughs> rely on them to say anything that makes any sense at it any was, given point it was never going to be a good idea to rely on the tory taliban no. to come around, right? <laughs> driving around westminster on their toyota hiluxes with paintball guns on the back <laughs> Look, so, i back. will not tolerate bespurching this taliban on the show <laughs> <laughs> They put a lot of planning into what they do. What a surprise. Hussein defends the Taliban. They don't have nannies, they have wives. Hussein defends the Taliban. (laughs) Surprise me. It's just because it's a group of guys that hang out together. Checkmate, Libs. There's no way not to go back to psychology on this, I think, right? The Taliban is a star. There's no way not to go back to psychology, where Theresa May has taken this and and has, since we last spoke, has behaved as though there is a natural kind of Britain that wants no deal. And that is, that it basically has all the characteristics of a, da- of a David Goodhart um, somewhere, if you know what I mean. Isn't that, it's, it's like, okay, so I haven't really, as I've said before, I haven't really paid much attention to, like, Brexit and everything. But, like, it sort of feels that this conversation has always been this very strange mix of, like, cultural... It's, it has. I don't know whether whether it would have been better, and it'd be interesting your opinion. But whether it would have been a better strategy to like advocate for a no deal solution purely like on economic terms. I think because so much of his conversation has also been wedged with like cultural issues around, as David the David Goodhart thing about like everywhere's and nowheres. Theresa May's being like, if you're a citizen of, you know, you have to be a citizen of somewhere. The Belgians want to straighten out bananas. I mean, all that as well. Like because so much of this conversation has been very much like a cultural one of like, what kind of country are we? Which is like, to me, is kind of one of these big existential questions that you're never going to answer anyway, but to kind of put like a big constitutional question in framing in this way, like regardless of what way you approach it, it's always going to fail. Does that make sense? I don't know if it does. Well, but to to frame it as a no deal as a constitutional point. No, to the, just like have this whole kind of conversation around like no deals and managed deals, like trying to kind of on the one hand advocate for a like a managerial um, logic based solution to kind of, you know, that we should leave the European Union in this very kind of processed and calm way. Meanwhile, like the conversations around Brexit aren't really about economics and not really about kind of like economic prosperity but they're more about what kind of people exist in this country and what kind of people should we listen to um going you know i think that's partly true but i do do think at some level it was just a really boneheaded strategy that said somehow um in a negotiation if you're going to get a good deal you need to the other side need to sincerely believe that you'll walk away which was just Mm. childish and it and it was one of those things that you had to have no real understanding of how the actual world worked or how the European Union worked Mm. in order to think that it ever could be a plausible strategy. Mm. And saying, look, if you don't give me what I want, I will shoot myself in the head. (laughs) By the way, you'll get splattered with the blood. Um, And so you won't want that. It's it's such an obviously stupid thing to do. Especially if it's someone's Mm. kink. Right. So it just, at at the end of the day, I, I think it was that kind of flawed thinking and thinking that you, they thought that it would have a benefit with the Europeans of getting a better deal, and they thought that it would have a benefit with Parliament in scaring particularly Labour MPs into voting for her deal mm. on the basis that the alternative was crashing out. And I think it just proved to be a total nonsense. Well, 
I keep thinking back because the Brexit vote happened and then um, Donald Trump got elected. And there was some, I was living in the United States at the time, and there was obviously like this chatter about, well, Donald Trump will be the Brexit president. And I realized that the similarity there is that after Brexit, which is a close vote after the referendum, and after Trump winning, which is also a close vote, which was really a squeaker, and it was only because of the incredibly undemocratic system the United States has, this then got interpreted as this massive cultural moment as though the mandate was much larger than it actually is. Mm. And everyone wants to say, no, the reason why Donald Trump won, or the reason why the Brexit referendum voted to leave was not because of a small vote and the way that it was decided and some tactical missteps, but rather because there's too many damn genders or something like that. They <laughs> yeah, always yeah. want to ascribe it to this larger cultural phenomenon. And for me, I think what's interesting is watching this happen and watching the 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 fantasy Brexit the the like n- can never reach it because it's on just, your fantasy Brexit team <laughs> it, it's like the, 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 this concept like like Brexit it's like we're going to leave the Euro- European Union and, and enter a different state of mind or something it feels as though the more that that has to come into contact with the reality the the less agreement there can be it's like it, it's as if well that's exactly right that's exactly the dynamic that's in mm. play and it's once you make Brexit specific in any form it probably could never achieve a majority so you've got this paradox. That by being undefined, that's how Brexit could get mm. a majority for people to leave, voting to leave. And then as soon as that had occurred, you could only leave in a specific and defined and concrete way, mm. at which point you've immediately lost the, the majority that you got by having it as an open-ended yeah. option. I, I sat in a round table with David Davis um, back in December 20, 2017, and he said, look, a lot of people are paying lots of attention to all the detail. It's like, yes, we know that you're a lazy fucker and you don't read your briefs. <laughs> um, that's well established. He's just assessing but our vulnerability to attack. It, it was Sorry. truly extraordinary. And he said, look, I, I'm not really up there with you know the detail of regulation or trading arrangements. You're like, well, that's the job, but you carry on. <laughs> um, and then he said, but I really think that what Brexit is about is a revolution in expectations and that it's about opening our eyes <laughs> to the rest of the world and realizing how much more opportunity there is outside of outside of Europe and in other continents around the world. And so if you think that this man was the Brexit secretary, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. he'd been in the job for over a year at this stage, he'd been in the job for just about 18 months. Mm-hmm. He hadn't got a grasp of the details, and he thought that, that the real value of Brexit was this amorphous revolution in expectations mm. that tells you a bit about how we were, you know, heading towards this. this he thinks he's Captain Cook. He's like, we will forge to relate with the new world. That's, that's just <laughs> it, though. That the entire thing has been the fan- this the fantasy. That's why you go back to psychology. It's the fantasy of of swashbuckling, exploring, fighting, glory, etc. It's just the ways in which it's cashed out are different from person to person. Mark Francois has a different fantasy to David Davis, who has a different fantasy to one of James O'Brien's many callers in like they mm. all have various different fantasies but they're all going to get but, eaten by the hawaiians they want to they want to jump off the cliff so that they can feel the rush of the wind through their hair on the way down right mm. and, and they I don't w- care what happens when you get to the bottom i'd like to move on slightly from no from no dealism though and go to a little bit more because we talked about what process labor wants um were labor to be elected tomorrow versus were Labour to be elected, say, after the conference. I know that's entirely hypothetical because they won't be. Is there some kind of positive, that is to say, just simply not negating uh, Theresa May, is there some kind of positive vision of what la- how Labour could then take a Brexit forward? Or do you think that it's so, parliamentary- so parliamentarily impossible as that it doesn't, it doesn't bear having? Well, I think, I think Labour would clearly put together a coherent proposal for a f- for a soft Brexit. I think that's what they would do. And I think people sometimes think, oh, well, you know, all kinds of Brexit are the same. And what the hell is the difference between soft Brexit and hard Brexit? And I think the terminology is not helpful. But also, essentially, it's showing, it's showing dick going in pussy, isn't it? That's the dick. It's whether you can show it on mainstream TV after a certain time or whether. It, it, there's Brexit. never going to be an episode yeah. where Tom's going to be on and we don't talk about dicks. <laughs> I feel yeah, like that has to just be like. is a dragon or not. Yeah, thank yeah. you. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, what's happened is we've, we've actually, there's been a collapse of the various fantasies about what the dicks are it started mm. as a dragon now it's mm. just a normal one that's after the yeah. watershed because before if you wanted a hard brexit you'd have to go to amsterdam and go to the bit in the back of the shop and uh okay. it's actually so, illegal to bring it back into the uk you know i i swear to god you guys are so on brand but sometimes i'm just like what is fucking happening holding us back on course <laughs> so holding us back onto course we would basically be looking at 
with the, the, any kind of positive vision that labor might have, like positive meaning forward and active, would basically be one of more or less what customs union, single market, this kind of thing. Well, so so what is the difference between the two uh, in the non pornographic sense? <laughs> thanks, my <Milo. laughs> um, This is like the rockets of Freddie Brexit. Yeah. Yeah. Please, I make right, I make Nate and Hussein laugh, and then them laughing makes me laugh, and then yeah. Freddie's like the Captain Cook of the show, yeah. always like steering us on course, God, except someone's <laughs> into a big cauldron. <laughs> someone end end my suffering, please. So well, so. So, so the, the the distinction is that one is a strategy that says the the best position for the United Kingdom is to diverge as much as possible, as quickly as possible, from the European Union and its economic institutions. Mm-hmm. So that's what a hard Brexit is about: a strategy of divergence. The difference with a soft Brexit is it says, well, actually, it's in our economic interest to continue our economic partnership, but we've had a vote to leave, and therefore we must continue it on a different political basis. So actually, they are strategically distinct options. And I think what people think is that somehow there's a spectrum between the two and that you can kind of have a compromise somewhere between the, mm, between mm. them but be, since the, the blockchain governing, irish border well but mm. get, since the governing thought is so radically different under each of those scenarios mm. there is no compromise between them in my view and part of the reason that theresa may has done so badly is that she's tried to find that middle way between the two she started out wanting a sort of ultra hard brexit then facts and and uh, experience taught her that mm-hmm. this would in fact have calamitous consequences. She tried to move her proposal towards soft Brexit, but having set an expectation with the Tory right mm-hmm. of this sort of fantasy ultra-hard Brexit, she just couldn't move far enough into sort of soft Brexit territory mm-hmm. for it to make any sense. And therefore she's going to end up with a sort of dog's breakfast of a deal. Mm-hmm. Labour, I think, would come in and not being constrained by a coalition that's quite the same way, uh, it would it would then propose a, a soft Brexit, but its coalition would insist on a further referendum mm. and vote on it because at the end of the day, Brexit is a project of the mm. right for the right with a right wing leadership um, that proposed a right wing agenda. And I think most of the Labour movement would very reasonably ask, "What the hell is a Labour government trying to do to deliver something that four years ago um, a bunch of pe- right wing people whipped up?" Uh, and, mm. and for what reason? So I, I don't think I don't think it's possible for Labour to do it without saying renegotiate and referendum. I do have one question on that though, because it feels like some, at least to me, that a lot of Labour's strategy is governed by the idea that they have to not seem as though they're being Brexit wreckers, because mm. they are facing the moment that anything strays from that, then they have the entirety of the British media basically painting them as betraying the will of the people. Or at, least the tabloid, or at least the tabloid media. I'm wondering, is there a point at which that mandate expires, at which that's no longer applicable? So I think things are on the turn. And I think the fact that last weekend, Peter O'Bourne, uh, the associate editor of the Daily Mail, came out with a 2,000-word essay saying, actually, the case for Brexit has basically dissolved. The economic case has collapsed. Um, the rhetoric has got out of control. The EU is not a dictatorship. It's a group of sovereign states collaborating together. We didn't understand it properly until this period and so on. I think that's very significant. And I think the other thing that happened this week was Nick Ferrari, um, who's a sort of populist radio commentator, has now said that he's given up on Brexit and wants to to think and talk about other things and we should just stay in. Mm -hmm. And what those populists are very good at doing is understanding what is popular and they kind of have a nose for it, right? And they Mm -hmm. they pick it up and they start to articulate an opinion that they kind of know is already brewing in society mm. yeah, but like so we were hype so, yeah. <laughs> so, so I, I i think i think we're at an interesting moment where you know labor has to be very careful mm. that it doesn't get caught advocating for something that actually a lot of people no longer believe in mm. out of some rigid belief that somehow the tabloid press will will but smack them around isn't there yeah. like this problem also about the people that even though there are like on the wider scale, there are people who don't care as much as maybe they used to, but the ones who do really care, like they're much, they are more kind of, what you call it, they're more fired up than ever. And some of those people are really unhinged and like, I don't know, whenever I think about this, I'm like... But they're quite close to a stroke. So, you know. <laughs> well, <laughs> also you know. at some level, I think I think at some level that there is a kind of lunacy in saying, look, the way that you um, tackle uh, the far right and people with extreme opinions is to give them what they want. And then they'll go away because it won't mm. make them go away. So I think at some point you have to realize you're in a fight. And when you're mm. in a fight, you yeah. have to decide 
either you're going to lay there and take a beating and hope that it won't hurt, or you're going to fight back. And I think, you know, it's getting to that point where I don't think there's much tolerance left in the wider Labour movement for indulging a right-wing project that seems to, at very best, leave us worse off than we were before and to have achieved nothing in particular. Or, and bear with me on this, Tom, you take the beating because you know that what the far right want is actually very good and they just want it for the wrong reasons. And when they eventually get it, they will realise that your vision of it is much better than theirs and let you decide how it happens. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is Lexit. <laughs> so, Strapping on my dungarees. Very yeah. Well, I've always said, so, you know, Lexit is mirage. It looks good from a distance, but um, up close, there's nothing there. Oh, it's like my car. The, the thing is, um, as, a, as a Marxist, if I am to be a Marxist, if I am to understand institutions not just as the literal bodies of rules and people that comprise them but also as an expressions of class interest like it's still there is still a socialist vision of the european union that is different from the currently existing european union so i sort of have two related uh points i want to i want to raise number one what does a socialist remain campaign look like if there is to be some kind of confirmatory vote which we think is likely um, and how does that get Boston, Rutherham, Manchester, and Cambridge voting for you? And second, or, or and, and sort of as a corollary, which ones of those can we afford to lose? And secondly, Boston. <laughs> what does the what does a actually more socialist EU look like? So if we're going to make those kinds of promises about being protected from globalization, but actually being protected from globalization from inside this institution, what do we then do to make good on them? Well, I suppose for me, the, the, the big lesson in all this is the EU is very important for many reasons, but the, by far the biggest determinant of our economy and society um, is already within our own grasp and control, mm. and that actually we have more agency and more choice and control about our future destiny than we commonly imagine. And I, I suppose in my view, you know, at some level, socialism is all about priorities, and so I think the very clear message that any left remain um, campaign would need to have would be stop Brexit, let's rebuild Britain instead. Because this is a colossal distraction from all the things that we could be spending our time doing. And actually, kind of detailed regulatory frameworks and um, trade agreements aren't going to be the things that are going to move the dial on you know, the quality of people's lives in most of, this, uh, in most of the country. And actually, having a focus on those things by not being distracted on Brexit is the way that I think mm-hmm. we can solve a lot of the problems that we have. Yeah, because I think there's a difference in saying that there were people had like legitimate concerns which they expressed by voting for Brexit, which I think is a valid point. But it's different to say different to saying that they had legitimate concerns about the EU because by and large everything they were angry about, like austerity and stuff, actually had nothing to do with the EU. Sure. They had just come to associate with the but, EU. But additionally, I mean there are there are things that we if we are to be a good faith left remain campaign, mm-hmm. like that we have to address, like the militarized European border. Uh, the sort of rank immiseration of Greece and the other southern states well, by Germany. Yeah, but no, but the, I mean, I know I, we're not in the Eurozone. Well, I know we're but, not in the Eurozone. But, well, still. but there's, there's two things to be clear about there, right? One, we're not in the Eurozone, and most of that has come through the Eurozone. Indeed. And I think if we were in the Eurozone and in the, one of the periphery states, I think it would be a very, very different um, debate. And if they were having this discussion in Greece about should they stay or should they go, I could really understand the kind of legs mm. arguments. I think mm. would have a very different sal- salience. Yeah. But I think you know you can't have it both ways and say, well, one one the same time we've got this degree of sovereignty and control, and we control our borders and all that kind of stuff, and then say that you also want to police other people's borders. So what if you're going to stay in the EU and you're outside of Schengen, then and you control your own borders as a result? I, I don't really think it's that anyone is going to think the UK is a reasonable voice in mm. determining border policy outside of. Outside mm. of our own borders, what I'm asking I'll volunteer is, to police the Greek border. Ways, yeah. right? what, what I'm asking really is, is if we are go, if we are going to try to be a socialist government in Europe, how can what are the things we can do to actually try to basically make Europe a better institution for more people? So I do think the treaties will need to be revised at, at some point, and I think there is a, 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 a very significant opportunity because the UK has had such a shaping role, and I think if you look at why is the has the EU been a neoliberal institution in many respects? That's because of the success of British diplomacy 
that has tried to drive it in that direction. And I think equally, if British diplomacy decided that it wanted to try and drive it in a different direction, that could be an attainable goal, but it doesn't happen quickly and it doesn't happen easily. So, you know, this has been going on since the mid-80s with the Single European Act, um, which were creating the the, the, the uh, single market and so on. Um, and it will take a, a years to steer it again in a different direction. But that doesn't mean it's impossible, right? So no, why no. wouldn't a socialist government, for example propose a trade union directive saying that there has to be minimum trade union rights across all EU countries, right? So there are, there are all sorts of things that you could choose to do differently. Okay. I just have one question because I noticed from recent polling that uh, for European parliamentary elections, it looked like Labour had a significant lead, like almost 20 points ahead of, of the Conservatives. I'm wondering, do you think that if that, were, if that were to play out in the election, would you start to see any kind of change or are we still too locked in to the Brexit kind of mindset? Well, just just very practically, um, if the UK were to return a very large contingent of Labour MEPs at this election, then the overall balance of power within the European Parliament would shift towards the Party of European Socialists. Mm. If that happened, that would have a big impact on who forms the commission, who the set of commissioners would be uh, in the next term. And so that really could shape and affect the, the future of Europe. Mm. So actually, the stakes are pretty high. If you believe in solidarity and you think that there's an opportunity f to help people in other countries, then the stakes are really high in these yeah. European elections and could make a real difference. I think this actually, we, this can be taken, taken back to then make a make, almost make the point against Lexit, which is that these very large institutions that span sort of thing, constructions like national borders that have the ability to even discipline international capital in some ways, it's best to take control of them. And in effect, by making everyone care about the European Parliament or by making many more people care about the European Parliament, what we're saying is, in fact, the project of Steve Baker might be a more socialist Europe that we're still in. Yeah. Well, this is why. <laughs> this is why I was so. Oh, right. This is why I was so. Wouldn't that be pretty yeah. sweet, right? Yeah. No, Thank imagine, you. imagine a completely different outcome. Seriously, that you've got a situation where you've ended up with the UK having had a massive row about being in the EU or not, and having concluded that it should mm -hmm. stay in. Right, and having resolved that once and for all, and stopping this kind of Eurosceptic skeptic bollocks, and every mm -hmm. time that you had one of these imbeciles come up and say, "Well, we just need to get out," everyone would be be able to say, "Well, we tried that, and have that mm -hmm. end last time. Shut the fuck up." Yeah. Right. At which point, you can then start to have a conversation about how do we have a seriously constructive role in Europe? How do we shape it? Um, in the direction that we want it to go, mm -hmm. how do we stop saying, you know, in Europe, not run by Europe, and turn it into in Europe, you know, leading Europe? Mm -hmm. And I think that that takes things in a completely different direction. And I think too much of the left um, lacks any kind of ambition when it comes to the EU. Say, oh, it's unreformable; it can't be changed. It's in the treaties. Yeah, and it just seems to me that. That, that fundamental lack of ambition is a mistake. Mm -hmm. The left well, is at its best when it is when it is ambitious and it is utopian. Mm -hmm. And just the fact that ref that reforming the European Union will be difficult doesn't mean it shouldn't be done, yeah. especially because it is such a big institution that can allow us to control so much. Yeah, I, well, I, also, I was I was just going to say also that like my brief experience with dealing with business things in the United Kingdom makes me think that as an American, if Lexit happened and Britain was opened up to rapacious American capitalism even more than it already is, mm -hmm. the, the I don't think people are prepared for how much worse it can get. Like oh, yeah, yeah, coming yeah. from a place where like Hussein got seriously ill eating food because he's not used to how bad the American meat quality is if you <laughs> buy from like not Whole Foods, like the level mm -hmm. of that kind of problem, like you're going to see so much worse. And it's like the idea that that wouldn't happen because somehow as an individual, we can control it better than as a member of like the reason why you have higher food standards in this country, as I understand it, is because of the regulations passed through the EU. Like yeah. if that were to go away, like, do you really think that it would be sweetness and light to use a british expression as opposed to it getting much much worse and like oh well that's okay we've uh we, we, we've we've put scented oil on this rotten food you know that kind of a thing well i was greatly enjoying tom's take on this because it really confirmed my suspicions because the first time the first time i was ever asked what i made of what i made of lexit was on uh, Bunta vista the australian podcast um where i was effectively an authority on brexit just by virtue of living here and not in any other way <laughs> and uh, i could literally only give an instinctive take on it which was well i think it's a bit rich to leave an institution on the grounds that it's not left-wing enough when it's largely apart from you run by a bunch of countries that are significantly more left-wing than your country and your country has spent the last 30 years trying to make it more right-wing <laughs> it just seems it's like it's like going to a house party 
body <laughs> taking a massive shit on the floor and being like, it smells bad in here, I'm leaving. Like, <laughs> 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 no, I think it actually happened once to a house party I went to in Kent. Uh, no, the, I was going to say the dark fruit connection comes again. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, just to just to take us out, I have a very brief um, reading a here. Palette cleanser, a little palate cleanser, um, by uh, by arch Romaniac Nick Cohen in uh, the Spectator. Just a a man who understands what's going on, knows, and he is, knows what audience. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is this is Nick Cohen uh, writing. Theresa May and Jeremy Corbyn have been undone by Brexit. Now I'm not reading it from the Theresa May bit. Slash fiction. Those, <laughs> those are basically like yeah, Theresa May's ability to govern is more or less gone. I would argue it was never really there. Mm. Um, but here's starting the Corbyn section. Maybe the real ability to govern was the friends we made along the way. The friends we made along the way. What? Bill Cash. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, now now Bill she's Cash, fr- a man whose both of his names mean money. Um, Corbyn <laughs> Cohen writes has failed miserably to oppose Theresa May's deal. <laughs> That's how he opens this section. So the fact you can tell that Corbyn failed miserably to oppose Theresa May's deal is, for example, the fact that the deal uh, went through. It mm. went through four I times. Mean, it is astonishing. I, I have to say most people would, think, would reasonably say that Labour has done a, a, an astonishing job at holding its coalition together. I mean, what an idiotic thing for him to say, but this is not a surprise. Carry on. Mm. <laughs> What, what are the next joys? But surely they're beached without Mike Gapes. I mean, how will <laughs> they ever oppose Brexit without the milk guy? In fact, actually, just a brief, a brief digression from the article. That was one thing I wanted to, I wanted to bring up. There are some columnists who say, ah, yes, well, Theresa May's deal failed because, you know, because TIG sort of showed that the creation of the independent group showed that MPs had to take this new politics seriously. Do you think there's any credence to that? Well, I think the poll came out. Yesterday, it showed that this, this new party of the one percent was polling one percent. Damn this this Which, pro this pro Bre- this anti Brexit party being undone by the polls. Am I ironic? The one percent, of course, being the Mike Gapes contingent. Oh, sorry, the I one, felt quite the one- embarrassed because I had been forecasting that they would get three to five percent, and it turned out that they were even less popular yeah. than I thought they it's were. A, getting one percent is what Mike Gapes would describe as semi skimmed. So wait. Hang on. <laughs> so one one percent would be what of the population of Britain would be what like sixty thousand six hundred fifty thousand six hundred fifty thousand thereabouts. I think there are about that many newspaper columnists in this country. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so that many people have attended dinner parties in Zone Two in the last year. So oh yeah, it's the party for them. So like, well, cuck, I think is a really important <laughs> contribution. <laughs> Like this, I've said it before and I'll say it again. Everyone who's been saying that Brexit is like the thick of it because there's so much backstabbing and political maneuvering has misunderstood the thick of it because it's it's a show about just image and nonsense. The only thick of it conversation to come out of Brexit was the one between the members of a party that had just accidentally named itself cuck. That's (laughs) the only thick of it moment. It's beautiful. I mean, the fact that also after two hours and 15 minutes after being launched... They had their first racism scandal. <laughs> so they're doing. They're doing a speed run. <laughs> um, well, it was the, uh, the. By the way, if you want to know what uh, TV show Brexit's actually like, it's not the thick of it. It's Game of Thrones, and again, not because of the high politics mo- maneuvering. Because of the incest. <laughs> Maybe. Uh, no, it's because. Hard or soft. It's because one thing that we realize is very little has actually substantively changed since we last spoke. It's just a ton of activity, but sort of just setting stuff up. Mark Francois is the dwarf. <laughs> I, I, so I think I think very little has changed in some respects, but in others, I think things have changed. So I think now opinions are much more locked in. Mm. And are and are hardening, and so I think I think the sort of new lay of the land is is becoming clear, which mm. is there is no majority for any outcome, mm. and that is the thing that I think we've discovered through um, four or five months of painful parliamentary maneuvers and vote watching and all that kind of stuff. That actually there isn't a way through this with this parliament. But if you think about this many episodes of a show for it to only have gotten to from months and months of constant watching of opinions are starting to harden. Yeah, of realizing <laughs> what was probably quite obvious four or five months ago. <laughs> like the Tory nostalgics, Labour too believes Great Britain's greatness is unquestionable, except in the case of the nationalist far left, they think Brexit will lead to socialism in one country rather than Empire 2.0. Cohen therefore says conflating, I think, the Labour position with Lexit. 
which is patently incorrect. <laughs> well, there are some idiot Lexiteers around, and they do take exactly that kind mm. of point of view, but they're obviously wrong. Mm. Yeah. So Delayed the Brexit policies, as we know. Ooh. <laughs> but, also, but also something, too, that I think is that they, they make it a point to constantly interpret what they think Labour is saying as opposed to what Labour has said in its uh, both in its manifesto and in, in its party or its conference platform. Like, they've done what they said they were going to do, and yet there's always, you know, dozens and dozens of moron columnists who are like, the, the, the mad Marxist Jezza is doing it again. It's like, but it doesn't <laughs> yeah. have any bearing on what they're actually doing. They invent something to get mad about for their column. Yeah. It's, just, it's just like when David Brooks invents an intimidating sandwich shop. It's just, over here, we do it in a slightly more overtly political way. Columnists are just pickup artists, but who are trying to understand the Labour Brexit position. Like, why, like why, won't, why won't women fuck us? We could ask them, no, let's not do that. Let's come up with an insane strategy by an enormous hat and start negging them. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Yo, I'd love to see Nick Cohen in a giant cowboy hat asking Jeremy Corbyn <laughs> if his Brexit strategy is real. <laughs> doing, a, doing a magic trick for John McDonnell. <laughs> and being like, yeah, nice Brexit strategy if you're into that sort of thing, I guess. <laughs> so he continues, Corbyn is not honest. He has never made a principled speech as leader explaining his opposition to the EU any more than May has made an honest speech exposing the make-believe world of the Brexit right. Because she can't, because she won't. Like I don't understand why they think that she's this this wise parliamentarian who somehow is just like, oh, she's she's just her strategy is wrong. It's like I don't think that she's capable of comprehending it. Yeah, because she had the opportunity day one to define what Brexit was, and she decided to define it as like we leave, we get everything we ask for from the EU. They don't negotiate against us at all, and then everything is great. And then then surprise, fucking surprise, everything that falls short of that is called not Brexit by like the fucking Dick Dastardly and Mutley of her own party, <laughs> and she's. Going Going like, oh, I'm sorry, Dick Dastardly and Mutley. I expected you to be so reasonable. <laughs> but also the thing, again, the thing he says about Gorman, he has never made a principled speech explaining why he thinks this thing I've invented that he thinks. <laughs> Why can't why won't Jeremy Corbyn respond to my many letters? <laughs> <laughs> why does he keep leaving me on red? Well, there's also a sort of like Schrodinger's cat kind of phenomenon with, with their portrayal of Jeremy Corbyn. He's always bad at politics, even when he's demonstrably good at politics. Mm. Every time that the Labour achieves something that they say they want to achieve, or at least like in terms of shaping debate, that happens. It's always because of some ethereal thing and not because of deliberate policy, because somehow Jeremy Corbyn is always, you know, just, just making jam and riding his bike in circles and not actually being the leader of the party. I don't get it, but they always come up with this stuff. Oh, but I think, I think to, be, to be fair, I think, um, you know, Corbyn, Corbyn's position um, hasn't been clear, that clearly articulated. And I think he would have benefited from being a bit clearer at the beginning about what it was. And essentially, I think he's, he is absolutely sincere when he says two things. One, he thinks the result should be respected, and he does want Britain to leave. I think that's actually pretty clear to me. The second thing is that I think he is sincerely opposed to this version of Brexit, this version of, of Tory, Tory Brexit, as he would see it. And I think it is possible for those things to be true at the same time time mm. and i think you know if he, if he were to have his choice he would have britain leave with a labor deal a soft brexit as it would be described um and i don't think necessarily the labor position has been that well articulated in the sense that michael walker talks about this that it's a sort of series of preferences so the first preference is labor's deal the second preference mm. is uh, it, it is is a second referendum. <clears throat> the third pre preference is a revocation. The fourth preference probably Theresa May's deal. The fifth pre preference is no deal or something. Some sort of sequence like that. Mm -hmm. um, and people struggle to get their heads around this idea that there are multiple things in play at the same time. Mm -hmm. But it's also been very clear that Corbyn doesn't back a second referendum and his preference is to leave rather than to remain in the EU. And I think that's not true for the vast majority of people on the left. And that's where the dissonance comes from, which is that for the vast majority of people on the left, they would like to stay in the EU. They don't want to leave it. And Jeremy Corbyn would like to leave it. But then again, also, I mean, he's, when conference policy has come round, he has come round to conference policy, surely. I mean, also, like, the, the, the vagueness is, or the perceived vagueness is sort of like, was sort of like a deliberate move as well, right? Like, well, when they say vagueness, what people really mean is that they don't like the fact that his position is for a soft Brexit, right? And they want the, his position to be for remaining in the EU, yeah. And so what they say is Labour doesn't have a clear position, whereas I think Labour actually does have a pretty clear position, yeah. It's just that they don't want to hear that message, 
Mm. They want to hear that there's nothing there and Labour doesn't know what it's doing. Well, Labour very clearly has a position for soft Brexit. My wife has a very unclear position on letting me back in the house. (laughs) (laughs) Equally, or you do what Nick Cohen's done here and you have invented a position that you say Corbyn Corbyn takes, basically, which is that Corbyn is a, quote, um, my best guess is the Labour leadership wants disaster socialism and not a compromise solution. It's childish, right? I mean, at at some level. And it... But the, the problem is not with people like Nick Cohen, who very clearly are kind of openly campaigning um, against uh, uh, against Jeremy Corbyn. And there are plenty of columnists who are in the same position and do that. And it's sort of understandable but that, that they say that. I think the thing that I find more frustrating is journalists who present themselves as reporters or presenters mm. who then say, but no one knows what Labour's position is mm-hmm. and just haven't bothered to try and find out or try and take it seriously Mm -hmm. or try and understand it. And so is it surprising that the kind of gobby columnists, you know, rant and say all those things? No, not at all. Um, I think it is a serious problem that many journalists simply haven't bothered to take Labour's policy positions remotely seriously and try and understand them. And I think they do a disservice to the public by not bothering to do that work. And the reason they don't bother doing that work is that they have the same kind of contempt uh, for Corbyn and the Labour Party as as do the columnists. Yeah, I mean, it it feels like they have been upset with the fact that Jeremy Corbyn became the the Labour leader, and so they don't want to engage with it. They don't want to engage with the idea that, like, this is a party functioning as a party, and this is the positions it's taken. They want to act as though this is some... This is some tantrum they're having, and that's going to all end yeah. when sensible governance comes back. Well, they just delegitimize it. Well, if uh, if those journalists are going to show contempt for the British public by not accurately reporting Labour's Brexit position, what you, the listener, can do is vote for Trash Future for a British Podcasting Award. Do, <laughs> do it. it. It'll be so do funny it. if Make we want. Everyone's head explodes. The there. <laughs> It'll be so funny if we want. Oh my we gosh. do not promise to respect the result. It's, though. Here's the thing. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? It's because we look, are unequivocally the best podcast in this goddamn cursed country. The real point here is that. Is that every is that most of the British media establishment seems to think that the Romaniacs is the furthest left podcast that exists? Um, that's true. I've seen I've seen the spectrum of politics podcasts from Romaniacs to the Delling Pod. Mm. Uh, <laughs> literally, there was an event that held that. So let's put mm. t- let's put two fingers up the British podcasting establishment and vote Trash Future for British Listener's Choice because then we'll have to go on stage and Hussein can explain his soup theories. Yeah. That's exciting. I will. I will. I, we, if we win, we will definitely go up on stage and like thank all the people that supported us from Mark Francois to the Taliban. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, Shout out to our listeners in the Hindu code. However, it also remains for me to thank Tom for coming on yet again to explain a smart thing to us. So, Tom, thank you. My thank pleasure. You. Yeah, and this Thursday, the 18th of April uh, in the year of our Lord 2019, I'm doing a preview of my Edinburgh show, uh, Pindos, all about getting famous in Russia, because I've suddenly realized that I need to finish the show before I start touring it. That would be a good idea, wouldn't it? Um, It's completely free. It's at eight o'clock on Thursday at the Secford. There'll be a link in the description to sign up for a free ticket. Please come. I'll be going. I'll, I'll go. I'm actually. That. I'm going to. And finally, as you all know, we have a Patreon that you can you can support if you so choose. You get a second episode every week. Um, I strongly recommend it. Otherwise, you know the drill. We got T-shirts. We got mugs. You can sip that soup. You can wear your allegiance to our dumb show. In any case, uh, thank you all, and have a good rest of your commute or shit or whatever it is you're doing while you're listening to this. Mm-hmm.